Heavenly Father, pardon all our sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt, remembered or forgotten. Merciful Lord, hear and hearing forgive. Forgive us for bringing dishonor upon your great name. Forgive us of deception, injustice, and untruthfulness in our dealings with others. Forgive us of impurity and thought, word, and deed, of covetousness, which is idolatry. Forgive us in our treatment of money, unduly hoarded, carelessly squandered. Forgive us of sins in private and in the family, at work and in recreation. Forgive us of sins in the study of thy word and in the neglect of it, in prayer irreverently offered and coldly withheld, in time misspent, in yielding to Satan's temptations, in quenching the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, our sins are innumerable, but praise be to your great name, so is your grace, so is your mercy. Please come hard after us in this text. We are well aware that we can be listening to the preached word but not really hearing it. Help these words not just to penetrate the eardrum but penetrate the soul. Help us not to zone out but to zone in. Our fallen nature still sees sin as attractive, dazzling, eye-catching. Deliver us from the sugar of sin and its gall. Father, it's vital that you feed us today. These dear people need to feast. Father, it is essential that they behold the beauty of Christ. Please help me not to fail them in this. Do not allow us to leave here untouched, unaffected, unaltered by your word. There are no frills, just the text. Father, I don't even know if there's a lot of practical applications. Just your good word. We all need to be reminded that your word alone is sufficient for your people. Give us another proof of this today. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. The Apostle Paul, a first century church planter, writes to this church three to four years after he planted it. He speaks with tender affection. Beloved, he loves them. He gives them not a suggestion, you might want to flee. He gives them not a question, would you like to flee? He gives them a command, you must flee. Do they need to flee Corinth like people are fleeing Ukraine? Is he telling them to become refugees? No. 
Corinth is not battle-torn. They don't need to flee the city. They need to flee idolatry. Like a deer running from the hunter, like an antelope escaping from the lion, they need to flee idolatry. In fact, idolatry's bite is more powerful than a lion's. Idolatry blends into Corinth more than a camouflaged hunter to the woods. Paul found the church at Corinth flirting with idolatry. And it's not an isolated problem. God's people have always been tempted to run to idolatry. That's why all throughout the Old and New Testament you find this command, flee idolatry. At times during redemptive history, you open the door to find Israel with white powder around their lips. It's not cocaine, it's idolatry dust. Very quickly, you can become an idol addict. Hear the deep emotion as Paul counsels dear friends to put away a more addictive substance than crack. Right now, you must flee. Present tense verb, keep on fleeing. Don't stop running away. This requires continuous vigilance. Get out of idolatry's company as fast as you can. You need to split. You need to bolt. You need to be out. This is something that can be done. It's something that you can achieve. Idolatry can be avoided and bypassed. God hates idolatry because it competes with him. The Lord cannot and does not tolerate any kind of idolatry in his church. Chrysostom said, be rid of this sin with all speed. Lest you think this is a first century sermon with first century problems so removed from your 21st century life, I will remind you, idolatry has tentacles in all lands. Instead of titling this sermon, Living in Idolatry-Filled Corinth, I could have titled it, Living in Idolatry-Filled Clarksville, or Hopkinsville, or Oak Grove, or Elkton, or Cumberland. You live in an, in an idolatry-filled city. You live, we live, in an idolatry-filled country. One pastor told the story of visiting India. He took notice of the little shrines with chicken feathers and blood, little statues everywhere, people down by the water covered in paint, worshiping the tide, Idol festivals taking place on every street. A culture so steeped in Hinduism, it seems no house escapes without a mantle of idols. This pastor asked himself, how could any Christian live in this culture so constantly surrounded by idols? He told about speaking to an Indian pastor and his wife who were both converts out of Hinduism and ministered in that very area. He asked the wife if she had ever been to America. She said, yes, but I don't like to go. He asked, why don't you like to go to the United States of America? She responded, I can't stomach the idolatry. Idolatry is the air we breathe. That is why it is rarely explicit to us. God's position on idolatry has a long history. 
And he has never changed his mind. He expects you to flee from ancient idolatry and modern idolatry. You, like the Corinthians of old, may argue what you are doing is not really idolatrous. But Paul has a word for you. In verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, I'm writing to people who have paper and pen in hand. They have glasses and suspenders. They are smart. They can learn. I did not write to little toddlers playing with toys. You are sensible, discerning people. You are capable of exercising intelligence in this area. The worst kind of preaching is the preaching that doesn't make you think. Paul is making his people think. He gives fuel to the brain. He's inviting their thoughtful reflection. And today I do the same. For two weeks I've been praying, help this text to make my people flee from idolatry. That my beloveds will discern the idols of their culture and run from them. Paul gives instruction on how the church is supposed to respond in three different venues. The first venue, cultic temples. That's in verses 16 through 22. The second venue, your house. It's in verses 23 through 26. The third venue, unsaved neighbor's house, verses 27 through 29a. Three venues, cultic temples, your house, unsaved neighbor's house. Dining took place in a variety of venues in ancient Corinth. One of them was cultic temples. Some Christians in Corinth were actually going to cultic temples and participating in the sacred mills that were part of the worship for pagan deities. They were involved in these religious ceremonies and it didn't seem to bother them. And you ask, how could they convince themselves that this was okay? Well, these pagan temples were like the restaurants of antiquity. Just off the temple were dining rooms. Those rooms held anywhere from nine people to 40 people. The members at the church at Corinth were often invited to dinners and banquets within the pagan temple compound. All business luncheons were held at cultic temples. They called them trade guilds. People of the same trade would join together for a meal in honor of the God who made that trade possible. You would have a hard time avoiding these places because that's basically where all the social activities and commerce of the day took place. The dining hall was decorated with pagan deities on the wall. And not just business meetings, but celebration gatherings. If you were invited to a birthday party or a marriage or an election victory celebration, they were held in these pagan restaurants. Even weddings held in these locations had pagan aspects to them. These temples were the center of social life in the city. These gala dinners with festive attire, everyone took part in it. It just became the air they breathed. Not attending these events limited your ability to participate in the public sphere. It hurt your chances at social advancement. And so this must have created enormous social pressures for Christians. 
Paul is going to ask a series of questions that will make the Christians think. He begins that series in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul speaks of the Lord's table. When we go to the Lord's table, there is fellowship, koinonia, translated partnership here. When we go to God's table, there is fellowship with God. It's interesting that Paul reverses the order. First cup, then bread. When we serve it as it was given to us by Christ, we serve bread, then cup. The point, your participation in God's table leads to fellowship. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Our manyness becomes oneness at the table. We are the fellowship of the loaf. The meal has some type of unifying effect. Just as there are many grains in bread, the people who partake of the table are now one loaf. The participation is vertical with God and horizontal with each other. It demonstrates the solidarity of the redeemed community. By partaking, they are affirming they make up the body of Christ. Participation leads to identification. Because we eat this meal, we are with these people. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, this verse can be taken negatively or positively. Commentators are split on it. I take it negatively. Here, Paul is using Israel as an example to the church. When Israel participated in cultic practices, they became one with the pagan people. They supported everything that altar stood for. They became covenantally linked to the idols. Now God's modern people, Corinth, are doing the same thing as God's ancient people, Israel. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Let's stop here. We know idols are nothing more than blocks of wood and globs of stone. They are nothing more than chunks of clay. There are no other gods. They don't exist. Paul then, it seems, recognizes maybe some false conclusions the Corinthians could arrive at from that truth and then says, verse 20, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul barks, when I say idols are nothing, I do not mean by that argument that it's okay to eat at these idolatrous tables. You are not engaging in meaningless and neutral activity. Satan sends one of his demons to act out the part of the imaginary God. There are demons lurking behind these idols that represent gods that do not exist. False gods do not exist. But demons exist in great numbers. Demons are real. Jesus said so. And they like to use idols for their nefarious work of deception. 
idols provide an excellent cover. The power behind Zeus is demons. In light of that reality, these idols are very, very real and very, very dangerous. When these people at meals worship an idol, they open up a portal for the power of that demon behind the idol to inflict them, affect them. And I don't care how nice the buildings look or how well-intentioned they may be, demons are behind it. When they deny the atonement of Christ, demons are behind it. When they deny the deity of Christ, the buildings are beautiful. Demons are behind it. Baal is a demon. Zeus is a demon. Athena is a demon. Aphrodite is a demon. Allah is a demon. Buddha is a demon. So here's the word again. Sharers, participants, koinonia. First time used of the Lord's table. Now used of the demon's table. And this clarifies Paul's objection to their participation. When you eat at these tables, you are collaborating with demons. You get entangled in their power. You become vulnerable to them when you enter that kind of fellowship. You become implicated in their horrid practices. In that verse, Paul quotes at least five words from Deuteronomy 32. When Israel drifted into worshiping idols, they were actually worshiping demons. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't dine with demons. You cannot have a swig of this cup and then take a swig of that cup. Both tables have covenant obligations. You can't eat at both sacred meals. Get out of the temple restaurant. You cannot have dual loyalties. Banqueting with the master on Sunday and slumming with the demons on Monday. They are repeating Israel's sin. Israel, who ate manna from the sky and drank water from the rock, then quickly shifted to eating food and drinking wine in worship of a golden calf. And this now makes sense why Paul's talk about the Lord's table. He's placing it in opposition to this other table. The Lord's table versus the demon's table. God's food Versus the devil's food. Eating of cultic meals was a regular part of pagan worship. And Paul says they are immoral meals. Verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, will you continue eating both meals and arouse the Lord's jealousy? We can't play fast and loose with our loyalty to God. Many of you are not Christians. 
And you may ask, how is it that God could be jealous? Is he like an insecure husband wringing his hands, hoping his spouse doesn't leave? That is not the meaning of jealous here. The Lord's jealousy is regularly linked with idolatry in the Old Testament. In fact, every mention of God's jealousy in the Pentateuch is brought on by idolatry. We are to stay away from things that compete with God for our loyalty. He will not suffer any rivals. You can't challenge the Lord and come out ahead. You are not strong enough. Paul is directing this toward the strong Christians in Corinth who think that they can do this activity without falling into sin. And Paul says, you're already in sin. Over and over, God links idolatry with adultery. When God's people go off into idolatry, they are cheating on him. How tolerant would you be of adultery in your marriage? God is the husband to old Israel as Jesus is the bridegroom of the New Testament church. He will not tolerate spiritual adultery. If you would not tolerate it in your marriage, why would you expect God to tolerate it in his? He expects exclusive faithfulness. We are to love him with a singular love. No amount of time in the arms of another lover will be accepted. In fact, this is the second time in the letter that Paul's told his beloved to flee from something. The first time, beloved, flee from immorality. Now, beloved, flee from idolatry. The two are always connected. Who you worship affects who you sleep with. This text leads us to an interesting and painful truth. We are quick to defend our idolatry as innocent. We are quick to defend our idolatry as innocent. I can only imagine how this church would have pushed back on Paul. We're eating with friends, not worshiping false gods. I'm not worshiping in my heart. I'm just eating with my mouth. It's just a meal, Paul. <laughs> Chill out. The restaurant just happens to be in the temple. Corinthian idolatry, much like Israelite idolatry, had to do with ordinary stuff like eating and drinking. Paul calls people who are faithful to attend church every week, he calls them idolaters. How offensive! How unpastoral! Well, it depends on your definition of pastoral. They became careless in their participation with idols. You think you can do that without being sucked in? You're wrong. Demons get pleasure from the worship that takes place in these pagan temples. Paul has shown this activity to be utterly wrong. Do not eat these feasts. When you dine with demons, you get entangled in their power. The church had too low a view of these cultic mills. They were way too flippant with this. 
but, but Paul, if, 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 if I don't go to these trade guild feasts dedicated to a pagan god, I could lose my job. Well, lose your job. Work made them compromise the gospel. Don't allow work to make you compromise the gospel. They are dining with demons and dancing with idols, saying it is no big deal. Beloved, it's a big deal. Dining at the Lord's table doesn't excuse the sin of dining at the table of demons. Dining at the Lord's table doesn't excuse the sin of dining at the table of demons. It seems the church was saying, I've been to the Lord's table, so I am safe now to dine with my old friends at these idolatrous tables. I participate with this table on Sunday, so I'm good to participate in those other tables the rest of the week. John Piper points out that it is possible to overestimate the power of the Lord's table and actually make it an encouragement for sinning. <clears throat> he says, this is frighteningly close to the way millions of professing Christians view the Lord's table today as a grace dispenser, a sacramental antidote that immunizes against all forms of worldly idolatry. If you show up and eat and drink, you are safe. And the rest of your life can be just as entangled in secular, secularism and sin as the rest of the world, end quote. It's important for Christians to heed the warning of Paul in this passage. The Lord's table is not a license for sin. That table has obligations for how you live the rest of the week. That table limits your participation in other tables. Which leads us to this. May God give you the fortitude to stand up and leave tables that Jesus would flip. As a church, we do not join in interfaith meetings for holidays or in response to tragedies. These other religious groups do not worship the true God. They worship demons. We are not at the prayer table with them. The Corinthians who were going to these pagan meals had coexist bumper stickers on the back of their horse-drawn buggies. God says, tear them off. The problem is not that they were too close-minded. The problem was they were too open-minded. They were more open-minded than the Bible. Were you involved in the occult before you became a Christian? Do you have friends who are involved in the occult? Even if you know those idols and images to be nothing more than a chunk of plastic... If other people worship them, there is a spiritual reality behind them. Get rid of them. Idols may be nothing, but idolatry is demonic. Don't listen to anyone who says, I'm a Christian witch. I go to church on Sunday. I, I, I go to Coven on Wednesday. No, you don't. You can't drink from both cups. It's syncretism going to both meals. You don't listen to teaching that says Jesus is God, then study with the Mormons and JWs who say that he isn't. 
You don't come to the table of the Lord, then go to the table of the Masonic Lodge. You don't sit and eat bread and juice here and then sit to have your palm read. When you come to the table of the Lord, it excludes you from sitting at the world's pagan tables. And as a side note, you should really consider evaluating your use of demon movies and demon books. You just need to consider if it's good to eat at those tables. You say, Kyle, that stuff is only nonsense. That may be true. But demons use nonsense. They're doing it in our passage. Venue 1, cultic temples, verses 16 through 22. Venue 2, your house, Sukasa, verses 23 through 26. Two venues, but the same menu. You see that? Two venues, but the same menu. Venue one, cultic temples, menu, meat offered to idols. Venue two, your house, menu, meat offered to idols. Two venues, but the same menu. For, for the first, if, if that's the venue and that's the menu, then you don't eat. For the second... If that's the venue and that's the menu, then you, bon appetit. What's the difference? How do we get from don't eat to bon appetit? When it comes to idle meat, it's always been more about venue than menu. The meal in a religious context is never just a meal. Paul moves from an absolute prohibition to some possible permissions. He doesn't deny we live in a culture that's filled with idolatry. There is innocent exposure. Then there is willing participation. He separates the two. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Notice the quotation marks. Paul is quoting a common Corinthian expression, a maxim, a slogan. Their slogan receives a double qualification. The Corinthians' careless sloganeering receives Paul's precise engineering. It's a mark of maturity when we balance our freedom with responsibility. Uh, Tertullian, a second century Christian, said it is much easier for one to dread what is forbidden it is much easier for one to dread what is forbidden if he has a reverential fear of what is permitted. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. A crisply stated moral principle. You're not called to serve yourself but to serve others. 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience historical context these pagan temples would butcher animals and burn some of the meat to their false god apportion some to the priest and worshipers and then sell the rest in other words the god got some the worshipers got some and the grocery store gets the rest the meat was butchered to pagan deities before it made it to the grocery aisle 
And Paul says, when you buy meat from the marketplace stall or the village shop, don't ask where it came from. Just buy it, go home, cook it up, and enjoy you don't have to run an idolatry test on everything you find at the grocery store. Meat did not come shrink-wrapped in packages that said free-range, corn-fed, idol-worshipped. <laughs> Buyers did not know where the meat came from. Meat often had unknown and ambiguous history. There, there is a possibility some of this food had been consecrated to idols. In the modern West... Most of our meat comes from farms where animals are raised and slaughtered without any religious connotations. That was not the case in the ancient East. Most of the meat sold in Corinth originated from these pagan temples. The pagan temples, the pagan restaurants, they were the town butcher shops. Paul has no qualms about purchasing and eating that meat. Why raise needless questions? We don't have to ask questions about the religious history of meat. Now, if there is a sign over it that says offer to Zeus, don't buy it. But in doubtful cases and when it's not specified, chow down. I don't know how this meat was used in the past, but I know how I'm going to use it now. Jews only, brought, only bought meat from shops that were kosher. And that was not Paul's pattern. Jews asked a ton of questions about the origin of the meat. Not Paul. He did it because, verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything comes from God. The meat you eat is part of God's good creation and God's provision for your nourishment. Eat it, enjoy it, bon appetit. That leg of lamb at the butcher shop, enjoy that. Paul is quoting Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This was often recited before a meal. Acknowledging that God alone is the source of meat. The goodness of God in his creation means that pagan worship cannot transform that meat into something that is unholy. Did you get that? The goodness of God in his creation means that pagan worship cannot transform that meat into something that is unholy. God is the creator of all things, including that animal. He is the ultimate origin of all food, no matter who butchered it. Steak belongs to God. Lamb belongs to God. Chicken legs belong to God. Kale salad belongs to Satan. <laughs> just yourself in your home with your family don't worry about questionable origins of grocery store meat this is the second time that Paul has spoken to Corinthians about meat, eating meat offered to idols and I feel like I used my best stuff for the first time that he talked about it just three chapters ago but there are nuances here that were not in the previous chapter and this is one. Not everything that is called idolatry is idolatry. Not everything that is called idolatry is idolatry. 
The Jews called this behavior idolatry. Paul didn't. Jews were meat inspectors. Paul says that beef belongs to God. Jews required animals to be killed in a specific way or they would not eat it. Augustine, Augustine if you're from the States, Augustine if you're in Europe. Augustine said, it's, I, should, I should say Augustine then because I'm not in Europe. Augustine, I'm just so used from seminary saying Augustine. Augustine said, it is better to die of hunger than to eat things offered to idols. Paul doesn't seem that dogmatic. Let's review the two venues. Here, you've got the, the legalist saying, this behavior is idolatry. And it's not. Previously, you've got the licentious saying, this behavior is not idolatry. But it was. You got the older brother saying this is idolatry, but it's not. You've got the younger brother saying this is not idolatry, but it is. How many of you, how many of you play golf? Paul says living in idolatry-filled Corinth is like trying to hit a straight drive. You tend to slice into licentiousness like they did in verses 16 through 21 or hook into legalism like some of the Jews were doing in verses 23 through 26. Church, if you're expecting a whole list from me on what to stay away from and, and what is okay to, to do, I'm not going to give you that list. You have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He will guide you. I can't possibly think of every circumstance you will face in this idolatry-ridden country. Even in praying for this exposition, I just I felt uncomfortable with it. God, I want to give my people specifics from your word. And he reminded me, they aren't your people. They are my people. And I didn't make a mistake in how I gave them this chapter. It requires wisdom and discernment as you live in an idolatry-filled culture. And my constant prayer has been, God, please give our people wisdom to discern Corinth's idols. God, guide them as they live in idolatry-filled Corinth. To summarize, when at the banqueting hall, don't eat. When at the butcher's stall, bon appetit. Venue one, culture temp cultic temples. Venue two, your house. Venue three, unsaved neighbor's house. Eating food, eating meat offered to idols in three different venues. You see, that's what Paul is doing. Eating meat offered to idols, and then he's going to unpack that, how you deal with it, in three different venues. So we are going from public mills to private mills, now to semi-private mills. From temple restaurants to the kitchen table to the neighbor's backyard barbecue. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. These Corinthian Christians were frequently invited to the homes of non-Christians for dinner. They are to gladly partake of whatever is put before them. Meat is in front of you and you do not know if it was offered to an idol or not. God gave you beef, eat beef. Beef is what's for dinner. In God's wisdom, he made cows out of beef. <laughs> Amazing. 
By the way, Paul is not opposed to you going to a non-Christian's house and sitting at their table. Paul never called you to that much of a separation. A Jew couldn't sit down with a Gentile and eat a meal in his house. Your hardcore devoted Jews are throwing up in their mouths as they hear Paul say, go over to a Gentile's house. Paul now presents a hypothetical situation. Verse 28. But if someone, let's say by chance, says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, let's pause here. This dinner invite provokes a tantalizing moment of inner debate. People in the church had had faced this vexing scenario and, and they are now all ears. How should we deal with it? Let's pick it up, 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Paul's outlook is clear and his response is not complex. You always do this unless this happens. Don't always be walking around on eggshells. Always be tearing up that meat. When someone brings it to your attention that they know that food was offered to idols, then don't eat. The remark alters the situation. You may be asking the question, well, in this hypothetical situation, who, who makes the remark? Who brings it to your attention? Is it the host? Is it a, another Christian, maybe a weak Christian who's at the table? Uh, a baby Christian? Is it, is it a non-Christian at the table? I tend to think the informer was a non-Christian who understands the food as being religiously significant. I think Paul depicts the informant as pagan. Hey, aren't you a Christian? That meat came from the Johnson farm. They butcher all their meat to Zeus. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I'm, I'm not going to eat it. Oh, okay, because I was, I was about to say, I wondered if Christians were polytheists and could worship more than one God. Paul teaches, if you go over to a buddy's house and he says, I sacrifice this to idols, then you put down the brisket. I, I remember a missionary telling us that he went for a meal on, on the mission field to a pagan house and ate the food and later found out it was offered to idols. This is a live issue in many parts of the world. Verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Would you pause here? You don't stop eating for your conscience, but for their conscience. For the, for the other guest's conscience, don't eat it. Now, how I break this text down is that verses 29b through verse 30 is reaching back to verse 26. Basically, everything from verse 29b on is reaching back to verse 26. Paul just gave a parenthesis and then he finished it. I contest that the whole third venue was a parenthesis. Otherwise, it seems like Paul was contradicting himself. So we have here, verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. There's a period there, a break, in parenthesis, hard stop. Now Paul will summarize the second venue. So he switches from you language to me language. He switches from you language to me language. Verse 29b, 
For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Some scholars think this is Paul's defensive posture. He's defending his own actions. Why should they be able to decide whether or not I am free to eat meat in my own house? Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? That for which I give things. I, I should not be paranoid or overly concerned about what others might think. Why must my wings of of freedom be clipped by the legalist Jewish conscience. Now, I just did you dirty here, okay? You thought we were finished. We're not. 14 through 29A, that's three venues. Then 29B through 11.1, that's three command use. Three venues, three command use. You see how that rhymes. I'm a poet and didn't know it. I should, I'm regretting that already. I am. Three venues, three command use. Paul will now begin his set of imperatives. Rapid fire, rapid fire commands. First command, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now what were they doing, people? They were not glorifying God with their food and drink. And Paul wanted them to glorify God with their food and drink. There are lots of ways to glorify God in this verse alone. I could, I could probably just preach for an hour from just verse 31. What, what does our kids' catechism ask? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There is so much emphasis on being radical that we miss the ordinary. The ordinary duties of life leading to the glory of God. If God made us for his glory, it is clear that we should live for his glory. Our duty comes from his design. It's impossible. It is possible. It is possible to live for God's glory in a city that is filled with idolatry. Sebastian Bach, at the end of his compositions, would always write S-D-G. Sign his name, S, and then S-D-G. Soleil de Gloria. All glory to God. So he learned that he could write compositions for the glory of God. He also had like 20 kids for the glory of God. <laughs> he learned to do a lot of things for the glory of God. Even the most mundane aspects of life, like eating and drinking, should be done for the glory of God. Do laundry, vacuum the floor, mow your grass, ride your bike, brush your teeth, sit in that cubicle, crunch those numbers, change those diapers, insert those IVs, lead that squad, build that business for the glory of God. Everything in your life is an opportunity to glorify God. And that's what these Corinthians were missing. Dig a ditch for the glory of God. Hold a shovel for the glory of God. Bake a lasagna for the glory of God. All that God created is to be enjoyed. That's the first command. Second command, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. That, purpose statement, they may be saved. Bring glory to God, first command. Bring grace to men, second command. It's interesting, Paul puts Jews and Gentiles outside of the church of God. Showing the responsibility to reach both. Showing both's need for redemption. You see Paul's evangelistic zeal in the verse. That they might be saved. He doesn't want to make it difficult for any human being to believe in Christ. Church, you are not on vacation in the Bahamas. You are on a mission trip. You are not at a sandals resort. You are in Haiti. Get on mission reaching the lost. Non-Christians, when God sent us here, he didn't send us here to relax. We are on mission to save you. You need to be saved. We will reorient our diet and our tables that nothing may distract from the gospel. We will put down the brisket that you might believe in Christ. We don't want you to be distracted from this message. You are at enmity with God. You are an enemy with God. Your sin has made it that way. But God in his grace made a way that you could be saved. Repent and believe on his son. Third command. You say, Kyle, we ran out of verses in the chapter. I know. Verse divisions are not inspired. They were not in the original text. And the chapter division fails us here. Verse 1 of chapter 11 clearly belongs with the preceding discussion. Verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, to summarize the three commands... Use your food and drink to glorify God. Use your food and drink to evangelize. Now, use your food and drink like me. Paul uses a, a, a pedagogical device of imitation. Mimic me. Copy me as I copy Christ. Some of you are maybe visiting here from another church. Many of you are members of our church. If you can't imitate your teachers, something is wrong with your teachers. A pastor should be able to say in every area of life, follow me as I follow Christ. You, you heard of WWJD? This is WWPD. What would Paul do? And I'll leave you with one final truth. Idle factory hearts can only find hope in an idolless heart. Idle factory hearts can only find hope in an idolless heart. It was John Calvin who said our hearts are idle factories. It was Martin Luther who said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. We realize idolatry includes more than bowing down and burning incense. There is an idolatry of well-educated hearts and minds. 
This passage reveals to us that it is not Corinth that is creating the idols. We do. Our hearts are idol factories. Rather than fleeing from idols, we find ourselves running to them. We return like a dog to his vomit. We become too cozy with things that compete for God's allegiance. We are like those in Narnia. We just love the Turkish delight. We can't put it down. We are guilty of spiritual adultery. We stepped out on God. We haven't been faithful to him. We ran after other lovers. In your battle with idolatry, mind this. Jesus didn't come for perfect people. He came for people who still struggle with sin, who still struggle with idolatry. Remind yourself that though you still fall, he does not. There has only ever been one idolless heart. Every other heart was an idol factory. Our hope is not in our perfect record against idolatry. Our hope is in his perfect record against idolatry. God overcomes our infidelity with his faithfulness. Father, one day our hearts will no longer yearn for idols. And we long for that day. Would you use this text to create an explosive passion of new affections? Help us to set our hearts on something that can actually handle them. We confess our idol-making hearts and trust only in Jesus' idol-less heart. Father, idolatry is the air we breathe. But Christ never swallowed it. Idolatry's tentacles reached us but it never grabbed him. So we have hope in Jesus' record against idolatry. Amen.